Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, it's Mark Wasserman. Welcome to the Ska Boom podcast, which is the audio companion to my book, Ska Boom, an American Ska and Reggae Oral History. The goal of this podcast is to talk about ska with an emphasis on American ska history and the bands, musicians, and people who have helped to create and document a uniquely American version of ska and reggae that spans from the late 70s until today. In this episode, I'm speaking with the Grammy-nominated reggae legend Pato Bantan, who is best known for his work with the English Beat, UB40, Steel Pulse, Sting, Peter Gabriel, and The Mad Professor. In 1994, he achieved a number one on the UK singles chart with a cover of The Equals' Baby Come Back, featuring Robin and Ali Campbell of UB40. Born Patrick Murray in London in 1961, Pato was left for dead at the age of five, an orphan at six, a doorman and lookout for illegal late-night parties by eight, a DJ on a Jamaican sound system by 12, and dropped out of school for good by 13. He was winning rap battles by age 15, became the father of three children at 17, and was incarcerated for the first time at the age of 18. By 19, he was touring with UB40, and by 20, he was at the top of the music charts in the UK. He spent his 20s and 30s recording album after album and touring around the world tirelessly, culminating in a Grammy nomination. By 40, The middle school dropout became the head of the music department at one college and assistant director of creative services at another, even creating his own school and music program for disadvantaged youth. By 50, Pato was homeless by choice, living in an RV in a parking lot in Los Angeles. Now 60, Pato lives simply but comfortably with his wife and still continues to tour the U.S. and the rest of the world extensively and has become a minister. Throughout it all, he's never stopped being a father to his 11 children never stopped touring, and never stopped spreading his message of positivity and love. Pato Bantan, welcome to the Skaboom podcast. Thank you, my brother. It's nice to be here with you. Yes, I'm very grateful for your time. I wanted to let you know that I grew up listening to you and your music, and it inspired me to become a musician. So I'm excited and honored to have a chance to speak with you. Um, I want to take a walk down memory lane with you, if that's okay. Yes, you published your audio autobiography, My Name is Pato Bantan, earlier this year. What was it like to revisit your life and share it so publicly? 
Wow. Um, actually, it was a great, great experience. It was much better than I was expecting. Um, the, it was in, interesting because two of my fans actually contacted me. They'd been fans for 25, 30 years, and they grew up on my music and wanted to know if they could come to my home to ask me some questions that, you know, they always wanted to know. And I said, yeah. And then um, they came to my house and sat down with me and said, you know, they would love if they could record everything and hopefully maybe in the future publish it. And I was like, no problem. Fine, let's do this. And um, it was just a very beautiful experience. They really led, they really led it based on my music career, which they had studied. So it wasn't so much about my personal, deeply personal life journey. You know, it was really about my musical journey, which included aspects of my personal life too, you know. So um, it was really, really a great experience. And um, now that I, they, I'm, now that it, the book is out, the feedback has been amazing. And I'm currently actually doing the um, audio version. So I'm reading the book um, and recording it um, with my own voice. And as I'm doing that, I'm actually doing the second edition of the book at the same time because as I'm reading it, I'm realizing that there's certain things I could have said better or there's certain things that I left out that I feel are, are important. So um, I'm getting a second wave of, you know, reliving a lot of those beautiful moments in my career. So overall, it's been a great, really great experience. Yeah, I'm, I've, I've ordered it and I'm looking forward to, to reading it. And, you know, just based on what I know about you, you have a pretty extraordinary life. I mean, starting from a very young age uh, and, and until now, I know um, you're in your early 60s now. It's, it's ex- extraordinary how much has happened how many things you've done during, during that time. So it's a, to me, it's a, you know, there's a movie (laughs) in, in, in there as well. Um, You've spoken very movingly about dealing with domestic abuse and neglect as a young boy. Um, If you're comfortable, could you share a bit more about that story? And, And I think what I'm more interested in, in how those experiences influenced and motivated you uh, throughout your life. Oh, well, really, you know, I, I grew up when, when my mom, my mom told me, um, that before I was born and she told her, her parents that she was pregnant, that my granddad was very upset and didn't want her to have a child at the age of 15. So he basically put her in a bath and tried to abort me and um but thank god i survived it and so she ended up leaving home and giving birth to me in a hostel and then when she returned home um to her parents i kind of lived in a arena where i wasn't really welcomed and then she met a new boyfriend after giving birth to me who was a bit of a psychopath and was violent to her, even on her first date. 
he was violent to her. <laughs> so I don't know why she decided, you know, to continue the relationship, but she continued and got pregnant for him. And then my grandfather forced her to marry or forced him to marry my mom um, when she got pregnant. So I was a part of the package. So again, I went from one home that I wasn't really welcomed into to another new marriage that I wasn't really welcomed into. Um, and I grew up watching him beat my mom. And as soon as she had a second child or a first child for him, he forced her to go back to work. So, you know, they would leave me and the baby at home. They would leave me at home by myself before the baby was born. But once the baby was born, they left me at home with their new baby. And I was still a child, small child myself. So my earliest memories is violence, foul language, um, and loneliness and crying, a lot of crying and um, feeling abandoned. And then by the time I was six, she'd had three children for him, who I was like the, the, the care, carer of. And then um, when I, just after my sixth birthday, she decided that she couldn't take any more of the violence and abuse. So she came home early one evening before he got back from work and grabbed her bags and some clothes quickly and ran out the house. And when he got home, after some scuffling outside that he he um, didn't fare too well in with my mom's new boyfriend, he came downstairs into basement, part apartment where we were staying and decided to set the place on fire. And he locked me and my three brothers into the bedroom um, and left. So when I started to see smoke and flames coming under the door, I, I decided to open the window, which I would have never done, never even thought of doing before that moment. And I got my brothers out and I got myself out. And that was the end of that family unit. We all got split up and reunited with my mother two years later. So all of my early childhood. And, and after that, after we split up, um, the two youngest went into foster care and was united with my mom very quickly. Um, the brother just under me ended up going back to his dad that tried to kill us, but at least it was his dad. And I ended up with my grandparents who didn't want me. So my existence with them for two years before being reunited with my mother was a, another one of abandonment and loneliness and feeling unwanted again. So it was a miserable existence from the day I was born until I was eight. Mm. And then I was reunited with my mom at the age of eight. And, you know, even though I was, even though I entered into a criminal lifestyle at the age of eight, um, until the age of 16, um, at least I was happy. You know, my stepdad was, our home became the, the, the local illegal party house. And I was a security guard from the age of eight to about 14. 
So, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I knew all this, but I, I don't know that everybody who might be listening knows about your, your story from, from when you were a child. Again, I, I think it's, um, extraordinary that you survived that type of existence and are, um, such a positive person that you mm-hmm. were able to turn, um, those very negative experiences into something positive. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to also mention, you know, I know how you got your, your name, Pato Bantan, mm-hmm. but can you explain to anybody who's listening, um, who might not know where that comes from? You mentioned you know, your home at that time was the place where illegal parties happened. Is, is that your name is related to that? Correct. Yes. Um, at the age of eight, my, I, when I started helping out, um, I, I think I was, you know, small for my age. And um, when I was doing opening and clo- I was a security guard and a lookout. And um, one day, you know, they used to make jokes that, you know, I'm the patu. And in Jamaica, there's a small owl that comes out at night. And um, it, it, it sings, it goes, patu, patu. And so my, my, my new stepdad, who was the owner of the sound system, he looked at me and said, we're going to call you Patu. You're, you're the night owl and you're pretty smart for your age. And so that's how I became Pato. In Jamaica, they would say Patu or Patu, but in England, they just say Pato, you know? And so when um, Rankin Roger and all the ranking MCs for Jamaica started coming out, I became ranking Pato as a teenager and started going on the microphone as my, an artist in my own name. So I was ranking Pato until I went to London for my first record audition with Fashion Records. And they grilled me, you know, when I went down to their record company, I thought we were just going to sign a deal, but they said I had to pass the test first. So they put me into the voicing booth and gave me some headphones and told me that they had a pile of records that they were going to play. And um, these records were instrumentals of different styles of music. So it wasn't just reggae, it was all kinds of blues and jazz and different styles. And they says, they're going to see if I can flow, do some flow over the the um, different styles. So it was all a surprise. I didn't know what they were going to play. And as soon as they would play a track, I would just start spitting some lyrics on the track. And this went on for about 30 minutes. And when they finished, they called me out of the booth and said, you are no longer ranking Pato. From this point forward, you are Pato Bantan, which was a big honor because there was no one called Bantan in the UK at that time. Only in Jamaica did we have Buru Banton. And I think maybe there was one other Banton. This was before even Buju Banton. And um, the Banton was like a title at that point. It was like, you're a great storyteller, you're a great lyricist. And, you know, to be called a Banton is an honor. So when they gave me that title, I was like, oh my God, not only is this so amazingly awesome. I actually, I, I like the sound of it too. <laughs> you know? It, it, it definitely stands on its own and it stands yeah. out very much so, so. So from that point forward, that was my name, Pato Banton. 
I want to I want to take a sidestep for a moment because w- you were born in London, right? You you were born in yes. Brixton, and your yes. your mother took you and and your your um, your brothers to Birmingham, right? Mm-hmm. In, in Hansworth, how did growing up in Birmingham influence you? Do you think it was different? You have a different experience there than you would have if you had somehow ended up staying in Brixton. You know, you know what's really really interesting is that. Um, because of the life I lived from, from being born to the age of eight, I was isolated, you know. I spent most of my time living in the basement, you know. I didn't have much of a social experience, you know. I started skipping school at the age of five, you know. And, and that carried on for most of my childhood life until the age of 15, so, you know, when I got to Birmingham, I would classify I would classify myself as being a bit backward and definitely not up to par with the kids in London because I never spent much time with other children in London except for at this school they call the special school that they sent me to at the age of six and a half, which was really, I just realized the other day they just did a documentary that these schools were for children with um, educational deficiencies or for kids who were retarded. And I was definitely not retarded, but this documentary just said that this this schooling system was, they called it the special schools. And they attracted mostly kids from the Caribbean, black kids, boys and girls. And it was a scam to make money um, and keep black kids in a system that was totally wrong. But thank God when my mom took me out of that school, even though I didn't attend it much, it was a very violent place. Um, It it was violent. The kids in there had learning. Some of them had learning deficiencies. Some of them had mental issues. Some of them were violent. Some of them were normal, but were not, being treated properly. So they ended up going off the rails. And I ended up, when I was in there, getting a little bit violent to defend myself. So um, thank God my mom took me out of London before that system really got into me, you know, because a lot of the kids in the documentary that I saw were in those schools until they were teenagers. So I had a you know, I, I avoided a lot of that negative experience. So by the time I got to Birmingham, because I never spent much time in educational facilities, I was backward in my education. I was backward socially. So becoming a part of my dad's late night parties educated me about the streets and made me street smart which for me was more valuable to me than the British educational system telling me about British history. You know, I, they were teaching me algebra, whereas my dad's late night parties were teaching me how to calculate and earn money, how to count money, <laughs> you know, and, and how to divide that money between three or four different people. <laughs> So um, 
it didn't take me long to catch up once I, once I got settled into Birmingham. But I definitely think that my experience in Birmingham is much different than the experience I would have had in London. But what's, what, what is very interested, interesting is once I, once I became, once I turned 18, about 18, 19, and started to go back to London to get into the, the industry because Birmingham's music industry was very slow. And all of the top MCs and top artists were all in London. Once I left Birmingham, after being the number one MC for five years in a row, nobody could beat me. Once I went to London and started mixing with the, the, the leading British MCs, I realized that that's where I belong. These were my true peers. You know, this was a level of competition that I could really, you know, um, thrive in and I felt right at home my auntie had a place for me in a room for me that I could stay at in Brixton so I I made many visits to London to the, all the record labels nearly all of them signed me you know for a few records like three singles or an album and um, all the leading sound systems in London welcomed me to come and um, perform I became friends with every single one of the leading MCs in London on a very personal level. Um, so, yeah, London actually became my home for a long time after I grew up. Sure. Um, you know, that's interesting to hear about your experience in the school uh, in London, particularly uh, as it related to or impacted um, the children of Caribbean immigrants. Can you talk a little bit about the SUS laws and and how that affected people who lived in your community? Again, for, for people listening who don't know what that was, can you explain what the SUS laws were? And and then can you share any experiences you might have had with them or, or your family might have had with them and, and how that impacted you? Wow, that's interesting. I haven't heard anyone say SUS laws for maybe 15, 16 years. Mm. You know, the SUS laws was basically suspicion. You know, the police could just suspect that you was guilty of something um, and take you off the street and lock you up in a police station and interrogate you. And um, I went through that many times. Um, usually they would just stop you and, and search you, search your vehicle or turn up to your home and um, with no warrant and say they have suspicion that something's going on in your home. And then they would come into your house and tear it up, tear up your, your equipment, your TV, your clothes, just tear up your place and just leave it in shreds. You'd have to start all over again. When I was living with my mom between the ages of 14 and 16, they used to tear up my mom's house because they suspected me of all kinds of stuff. They couldn't catch me with anything. Um, but one day they... I was in the city center and a group of police stopped me for suspicion. And um, I had a tape recorder in my bag. It was old, it even had a burn mark where the plastic was too close to the heater and it had a burn mark on the side, but it wasn't my tape recorder, it was my cousin's. And when the police stopped me, my cousin ran off and left me. So the police took me and the, the tape recorder handcuffed me, took me to the police station. 
Then when they got me in the cell, they just started beating me up. Um, they couldn't find any evidence that I stole the machine, so they just um, got some other crimes that they couldn't solve and beat me until I was willing to sign the charges. And then they sent me to jail after six months waiting to go to trial. Um, the first the first trial I had, they acquitted the case because there was there was no evidence. So the prosecution said, retrial, Your Honor. So they sent me back to jail to wait for another three months. And then the second time I came up from the cells to go into the courtroom, it, everything just went by so quickly. And the next thing I heard was guilty. And they said, okay, take him away. So I got found guilty for all these charges and sentenced, um, even though they had no evidence the second, in, during the second court case. So it was all, it was all rigged. You know, I had evidence that they beat me up. I had photographs of my face, the, my bleeding, my bruises, but none of that was taken into, a, into account. So, you know, um, that's what the SUS laws was. And um, they used it specifically on the black community. Right. Yeah. I've spoken to some people about it and the way they explained it to me was, uh, you're guilty for being black and walking on the street. Yes. Simple as that. Yeah. Basically. Uh, yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I wanted to just make sure that people understood uh, how you came up. Um, because again, uh, your music is, many of the songs are have a positive vibe, but when you really look at them, when you listen carefully, particularly to some of your earlier music, it's clear that you um, are are um, chatting about your experiences um, mm-hmm. as, as a young black man in, in England. So mm-hmm. um, I think that's important for, for people to understand where where those experiences you had came from and how they they are incorporated into your music. Um, it must have been pretty amazing as a young boy to be at these blues parties, illegal blues parties, right? Um, Very. How did hearing reggae music change your life as a young man? And is there a song or performer that was particularly influential to you when you were, you know, the lookout at these parties? Um, it, it's hard for me to pinpoint a specific artist because it was like a wave. You know, we, we had a, a period of time before reggae was even, had even evolved where it, we were listening to rock steady and, and all of those songs were just fun, just fun songs. Some of them kind of sexy, sexy humor. And then we went from rock steady to blue beat and then ska, you know, um, which was more up-tempo dancing music, and, and that was the same kind of lyrics. And then all of a sudden, there was this wave that came over of music that started talking about Africa and started to talk about oppression and started to talk about slavery and talk about Jah and God and living a clean life and a righteous life. And the beat changed. Then all of a sudden, this wave of what later became known as reggae music started 
becoming a source of education and inspiration for me as a black kid growing up in England that had no black education, no cultural education. Um, and, and the music was also saying, know your roots, know your culture. And so I was like, okay, what is my roots? You know, here I am living in a country where I'm, I'm either trying to avoid the police or I'm trying to avoid the National Front, which is a racist group of white people that is hunting for blacks to beat up in the evenings and the nights. And I got chased by them, had, in, had physical encounters with them. And, and, I, and they're telling me, nigger, go home, go back to where you come from. And I was born in England and I'm questioning, where's my home then? If I'm born here and I've got these natives telling me to go back to where I come from, where do I come from? Because I don't know anything about Jamaica. I don't know anything about anywhere beyond Jamaica. So I started finding out that, you know, my roots go back to Jamaica and then from Jamaica back to Africa because of slavery. And then when the music started talking about Jah and the Most High, I started to realize that, hold on, yes, as a black man, I have my material roots, I have my cultural roots, I have my physical heritage that goes back to Africa, more than likely West Africa. But as a human being, as a spiritual being, where do I come from? And that started me, my search for God and, and, my, and my spiritual search for my spiritual identity. So reggae music impacted the entire black community of young people in the UK. Most of us started growing our dreadlocks and embracing Rastafari and listening to reggae music, not only as a form of entertainment, but also as a religious practice and smoking marijuana. So yes, reggae music changed me totally from where I was as a 14-year-old to who I became as a 16-year-old. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I saw this film, uh, I want to say it was last year, uh, by Steve McQueen called Lover's Rock. Mm -hmm. and, um, there was one episode of, of that anthology that set it up at a blues. And um, I wanted to ask you if you had seen it. Yes. And if you have, how, how accurate was that in terms of the, of the, you know, the parties, the illegal parties that your stepfather hosted, you know, was that a very accurate depiction of what a, a blues party was like? That was a very good depiction of what the blues parties evolved to. Um, for my dad, we actually shared a one, two, three, four, a five bedroom house with two other families, okay? So imagine that you're, sh you're sharing a five bedroom house with one family who's living downstairs with one, two, three children. So there's five of them in one room. 
There's another couple upstairs in the back room where there's two of them, just a man and his wife. And then there's my mom and my stepdad in one room with two girl children. And then in the room adjoining their room upstairs is me and four of my brothers. Okay, so my dad is using the downstairs room, one room, as a party room for the black community. So, and the kitchen was renovated into the bar. Now, what you saw in Lover's Rock, they normally go into an empty house, you know, or they empty the house and use the whole house as the party house, you know. But my dad was doing these parties four nights a week with other people living in the house. So they were all feeling the baseline and the, hearing the noise from the conversations and the door opening and closing all night. Four nights a week, they were actually living in a nightclub, you could say. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then people who couldn't fit into the party room because it had a speaker box in it. It had the two big wardrobe speakers in it. You know, they would just be in the passageway or on the stairs just hanging out, talking, you know? So the whole house was filled with people, but only a third of them could actually fit into the party room. But I would say that the Lover's Rock film was very, very accurate. Even the costumes, the clothes that they wore in that film was perfect. I I just figured I had never been to one. And and to me, watching that was uh, eye-opening in a lot of positive ways just to see mm-hmm. what it was like. Um, but, but I'm, I'm, I wanted to hear from you, you know, if you were there four days a week, uh, you know, how accurate it was. Yeah. Um, did, did being at those parties, is that where you first got sort of the itch to, to perform? Was it listening and hearing all the different records that were being played that inspired you? I mean, would you listen and, and chat along to yourself? Is that when you started to, to first write your own lyrics? Yeah, it was um, when, when, when it was just singing, yeah? When, it was, when Jamaica was only releasing um, artists that were singers, I was quite happy to just sing along but never considered myself as a singer. But when the MCs started, when, when people started to speak and rap over the music. That's when I thought, wow, I'm loving this. And then my stepdad said to me, um, you know, you, you can start spinning the music. You can start entertaining a crowd. So I actually was promoted from being the security guard to being the DJ. And being the DJ meant that I could go on the microphone. And once I got on the microphone, I started you know, entertaining the crowd. When in between the records, you'd have to speak to the people. And then sometimes while the record's playing, you say a few rhymes. And I was imitating the, the early pioneers like Uroy and Iroy, Trinity, Gillinger, you know, all the way up to King Yellowman and Ika Mouse. When they first came out, I was an aspiring MC and the whole thing evolved so quickly. You know, uh, it was amazing. So you had to keep your chops up 
you know, if you were going to stay, you know, um, fashionable, you could say. And then when, 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 when we started originating our own style in the UK, then we became what was known as British MCs, which meant that we could stop imitating Jamaican artists and start becoming originators of our own different styles, which gave us so much more freedom. So yes, it was in these late night parties that I got the itch to become an artist with my own name and in my own right. Wow. So you basically had f- four nights a week opportunity to learn your craft, right? That's right, basically. Yeah. And what inspired you to use different voices? Did that start when you were young? Where you know, I know you you um, often um, in your songs you bring your mother's voice in. You know, you go high with with your mother's voice. When did all that start? Did that start around this time where you were um, imitating different people in your family in in the different chats you were doing? Um, not, not in the early part of my career. No, that came later. And, and I think really that I can't claim that as being my original creation because the, the London MCs were the first ones that I heard, um, imitating people, um, as far as adding an extra character and then creating conversations between themselves and this external character. And then, and then the next thing I know, everybody's doing it, you know? And, and I really used to focus on my mom because she was the closest person in my life. And then it branched out from there. Uh, to, to me, it's one of the, the most engaging things about, about your songs. I love mm-hmm. the songs where your mother's in them. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a humor there, but also it's clear that you love your mother. Yeah. And, um, and that she was part of your life. And, and, you know, she's like part of the, you know, in, in Greek tragedy, the chorus, like, you know, uh-huh. having a conversation <laughs> with you to tell you to stay in the straight and narrow, which I always, uh-huh. appreciate. um, you know, you were just mentioning, you know, how, how the UK reggae scene developed, you know, in the early eighties, you tip Irie smiley culture started using humor and fast talking or chatting in double time, which was, which was unique. Can you explain how that began? Did, did one of you start that or was that all at the same time that you all just started to, to increase your pace in terms of how quickly your, your lyrics came out? Um, it, it started with one guy in London um, who started doing the speed rap. But within, the, within a few months after he did it, everybody started doing it. And that's what separated the British MCs from, from the Jamaican MCs. That, that's when the, the big gulf <laughs> was created um, and the British MCs were renowned for speed rapping. And that's what separated me from most of my peers in Birmingham because as soon as the London MCs started doing it and I heard it, I started doing it, trying it and then doing it. Whereas most of the other British, I mean, Birmingham MCs didn't have the energy or desire to take on that challenge. Right. You had that youthful energy, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. it, it, I'm just interested for, purely as a performer. Is it hard? I'm going to assume the answer is yes, but is it harder to, to chat faster 
do you have to have more lyrics than you would if you were just chatting at a regular slower pace? Yeah, you have to have twice as many lyrics. And, and you have to get the diction right so that when you're doing your speed rap, people can actually follow you and hear what you're saying. And then not only do you have to get the diction right, you have to get the timing right so that you don't lose the, the count of the beat so that you're landing with the beat while delivering a lyrical content at twice the speed that you would normally deliver it. So it, it is a challenge. It's a, it's a big challenge. And, and the other part of the challenge is how long can you maintain it for? You know, because you can do an eight, eight bar speed rap, but that's not going to really be appreciated by an audience who's only just starting to get into the vibe at, on the eighth bar. You know, when you take it up to 16 bars of speed rap, then the people are going crazy, you know? <laughs> right, right. And you are, if you're telling a story, you have to take the story from beginning to end. It's not like you're just saying things that don't connect, right? So you have to think this out almost like a mini movie, right? Where you're, you're writing your dialogue for a character. You have to think it from beginning to end with a chorus, right? With a hook. That's right. Yeah, not easy. I think it's it looks much easier than it probably is. You know, when we listen to your music, it's just, oh, this is this is Pato Bantam. But I'm just, I want people to understand, like, you must have had to put a lot of time and, and thought into, into writing all the lyrics for these songs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, were you part of one of the sound systems in Birmingham? I know Astro from UB40 was part of the Duke Alloy sound system, but did, did you did you travel around or, or um, perform for any of these um, local Birmingham sound systems? Yeah, I, I used to actually work with Duke Alloy as well after Astro left. Um, I, I actually was not only their, their DJ, I actually, um, no, I mean, not only their MC, I actually became their DJ. And many, many nights I was the only one responsible for the entire sound system. Duke Alloy had a huge sound system. And um, I became responsible for that on occasion. I was also um, responsible for being the MC and DJ for sound systems like Roots Radix, like um, Sofra Sound System, and, and maybe about two or three other sound systems that I would guest on occasionally. So, yeah, um, I, I was a part of the circuit of sound systems in my city for sure. Fair to say that um, that's a graduation, a, a big graduation up from from performing in your father's uh, front room, right, to, to being on stage in a sound system, right? That's a big, yeah, that's a big um, transition because we went from the small room to, you know, big halls, you know? And... Is that how you met Ranking Roger from the English Beat? Did he see you at one of these um, perform at a sound system? No. Um, Ranking Roger from the English Beat. Actually, they, the English Beat was doing a performance on the corner of my road. We had a, a theater <clears throat> at the corner of my road and the English Beat were performing. But before their performance, there was a talent competition. And um, the winner of the talent competition 
was promised um, the opportunity to work with Roger in his recording studio. So I turned up late to sign into the talent competition. So I had to beg the person at the front box office to please put my name at the end. And um, eventually they agreed. So um, I waited um, until everybody else had performed. And then they called me up on stage and I had my record with me that I wanted to perform on. And the English beat were watching everybody perform. So I went on the stage and I started performing on my record. And then I decided to do some dancing because um, I, was, I was also one of the top dancers in my city. So I did this dance move and then I finished it with like, almost like a kind of a high kick. But when I did the kick, I kicked the cable of the microphone and broke the cable at the at where the sound system was at the DJ side. My side was still in the microphone, but at the DJ side, when I kicked the cable, it broke and fell on the floor. And I was like, oh my God, I can't finish the lyric. So the music was still playing. So I just danced off the stage. <laughs> <laughs> When I danced off the stage, all the crowd started saying, we want more, we want more. But of course I couldn't do anymore because the mic was broke. So um, eventually they, they called me out and says, you are the winner of the contest. <laughs> I created such a hype that um, I became the winner and Rankin Roger came up to me and, and said to me, I really love your style. You know, I'd love for us to get together and work on some ideas. So we actually became almost like DJ partners for a while, working in his studio, writing lyrics and discussing um, music and the music industry. He was like my mentor um, as far as being a professional artist and what the challenges were being in the music industry. And I was like his almost like his street connection. I, I would keep him up to date of what was the, the most current style on the street and, and what was happening, you know, with the, the British MCs and the new different, you know, forms of delivery. So he would incorporate the ideas I would share with him into his music and then we would record things. So it was a really great relationship, you know. And he yeah. helped me produce one of my first singles, as well, which became a hit in the UK. And then we did a song together called Pato and Roger Gotak, Agotak, which ended up on the, the Beats album, Special Beat Service, which went gold in America. Now you come to musical sound that really leaves the town. So the black white king comes out, they're coming down the van and the town, and they come around. Who could this black from the top one twist? So they're not together with the ball, they're the top of the car. They come to this to make a chicken play. Uh-huh. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Raja, I got some. 
Yeah, I, I was going to say, that's probably where many people like myself first heard you. And um, I wanted to ask you about that because when I was doing my homework, um, I learned that you and Roger considered some other songs for that album, but that was the one that was chosen. Why, mm-hmm. was, why was that one picked over some of the other ones that you two um, had demoed or worked on together? I think that one was picked because it had the most commercial flavor. And Dave Wakelin, the lead singer of the band, um, as soon as we, me and Roger finished voicing the track, Dave Wakelin went on the track and started doing some weaving in and out with his vocals and stuff. And then they got saxa on it and the track just sounded like a hit, you know? Um, so the band, it was band, it really was a band decision. And so we just left them to it, you know? Yeah. Um, what I thought was interesting it, is in the UK, it was released as a separate standalone single, right? It was you and Roger yes. on, on that song, which I thought was sort of interesting. Did that, uh, the, the fact that that was released as a single on a major label help you sort of jump start your your career? I know you had been working on other music, but was that particular single, did that have a, an impact on, on raising your profile in the UK? Definitely had an impact on raising my profile with radio, you know, um, with the, the, the London DJs, with the media in general. Yeah, 
being associated with the English beat was a very good thing for me. And and doing that sing, single with Roger was great. It, it wasn't a top 10 hit. I f- can't remember how high it got, but it definitely put my name on the map and was a precursor for everything else that I was planning at the time. Roger was a very important part of, of your career. I know he was a close friend of yours as well, but I, but I think he, he, he worked with you uh, on, on a lot of other songs. Like for instance, did he work with you on Hello Tosh? Definitely. He was yeah. a producer. He was a producer for Hello Tosh. And for anyone listening, can you explain <laughs> what that song is about? It's one of the catchiest songs that you do. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I think like a lot of Americans initially, I thought you were saying hello to Peter Tosh, but you're not saying, you're not sending greetings to Peter Tosh, right? No. This one is a day to check. This one is a day to song is about and this song was never ever intended to be taken seriously I never took it seriously I was sitting at home one evening and a friend of mine came to me and says Pato because I I used to write songs um, you know one-off songs for my friends they would give me a tape tape a cassette tape And I would be a DJ. I would get my sound system, my little sound system at home. And I would do a 90-minute session, one-off session, personalized session for my friends for £10. And I'd give them a cassette with me emceeing, rapping, playing music, entertaining them for 90 minutes. And they would take it away and go and play it for their family in their car, whatever it was, you know. And it was good practice for me and a great gift for the people in my community. So one day my friend comes up to me and he says, Pato, I want you to make me a cassette. But on this cassette, I want you to write a song called Alo Tash Gada Toshiba. And I'm like, Alo Tash Gada Toshiba? He's like, yeah, haven't you seen the advert yet? And I'm like, no. 
Hello, 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 Toshka Toshiba. Hello, Toshka Toshiba. That's an FST. That's an FST. It's the flattest, squarest tube. It's the flattest, squarest tube. They ain't half built well. They ain't half built well. Of course, every Toshiba component is stronger to last longer. Know what I mean? That's good. That's good. Hello, Toshka Toshiba. Hello, Toshka Toshiba. He said, bro, there's an advert on the TV with a robot. And the robot saying, hello, Tosh, got a Toshiba. And they're promoting Toshiba TVs. But the hook that the robot is saying is wicked. So I'm like, I, I go and sit down in front of the TV for about an hour and see the advert come on in between some programs. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is this is awesome. So I make him his cassette. I give him his cassette, a 90-minute cassette, and I wrote the song for him on the cassette, and he was the happiest guy I'd ever seen. And that was the end of that. Then I went to a party, and maybe two weekends after I gave him the cassette, I went to a party to do a little performance, and he was at the party. And he's like... Pato, can you do that song in the party? I'm like, no, bro. You know, I didn't take the song seriously, you know? So I'm like, no, man, I'm not going to do it at the party. You know, that was a one-off song just for you. And I don't have any intention of performing that song again. He's like, please. And he looks in my eyes. And I'm like, all right. I couldn't even remember all the lyrics. Because I never rehearsed it after I did it for him, but I could rem- I remember the hook line. So I, when I started performing at this party, I said, this one is for my brother, Les Byrne. And so I started going, Hello, Tash, got a Tashi, ba, 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 hello, Tash. And the whole place started screaming and making noise. People started banging on the walls, on the speakers, stamping their feet. And I'm like, oh my God. This is a hit song. (laughs) So I left it at that. And I went to London. And um, I did a show in London, a very big show. Um, And I had extended the lyric by that time. It, It became a part of my repertoire. And, but I still didn't take it seriously. So I went to London with all these big names from Jamaica and from London. And um, at that point, I was looking for a management deal and a, and a serious record deal. I, I did some small record deals, um, but I wanted a major record deal. Um, so I went to this show and they put me on early because I was from Birmingham. And I did my set and came off. I wasn't that excited about the set I did, but I did it came off and then one of the Jamaican artists didn't turn up. So David Radigan, the top DJ in London, asked if Pato Banton could come back and do another song to fill the gap. So um, I said, okay. And my friend at the time, his name's GT. I said to GT, all right, I've got, I've got an opportunity now. The place is packed. <laughs> with people, this is a prime spot. What song do you think I should do? Should I do Guan? 
you know, and he's like, no, do a low touch, gather to Shiva. I'm like, no, don't tell me to do that song. <laughs> you know, he's like, trust me, bro. Trust me. That's the song to do. So I told David Radigan what rhythm I wanted to use for the song, which was the same one I used on for my friend. It's called Get Flat. And so he puts on the song and I walk on the stage and I say, hello, Tash, Gadateshi, bap, bap, bap. And the same thing that happened at the party happened in this auditorium. I couldn't even get past the chorus line. The place was going so crazy. David Radigan had to stop the music. I've got a photograph that somebody took with David Radigan putting his two hands in the air because he was just so blown away with the response. And I ended up doing this, the lyric a cappella with no music. And every punchline I did, the place went crazy again. <laughs> that night I was approached by nearly every leading management company in London and nearly every record label manager in London approached me to sign me. And, and in the ride home, I said to my friend, GT, I've got all these managers approaching me right now. I don't know what to do. And GT looked at me and said, I'll manage you. He was only my driver. He had, he had no management experience. He was a my friend from Birmingham who was my driver. And I looked at him and said, you sure you can handle managing my career right now? He says, yeah, I can do it. He said it so calm and so confidently. I just said, okay, you're my manager. And I said, as far as the record label goes, I'm going to sign with a label, but this song, A Low Tush, I'm not giving none of those labels this, this song because I've already sent it to all of them and they all refused it until they saw the impact it had in an, on an audience. So I'm going to give this song to my local record store owner, Dan Christie, who always helped me when I needed help. And that's what happened. Dan Christie, my local record store owner, created a label, released the song, and it was a hit. Yeah. I, I think it was very went very high on the on the British reggae charts, didn't it? It was number three in the British reggae charts as a newcomer, and Roger produced it. Yeah, it's a it's such a great song, and that's such a great story. I didn't know that story, so thank you so much for for filling in all the blanks on that story, mm -hmm. particularly for those of us who you know who didn't live in England and didn't have that commercial on television here. Mm -hmm. um, just as a follow-up question, did, did Toshiba ever give you any, um, you know, TVs or anything for all that publicity you got them? We, we, Dan Christie approached them. He drove to London, um, put on a suit, went down there to meet them, explained to them how big the song was um, and how much, you know, people were loving the song and how we, we actually took an image of the robot, a sketch image of the robot that Toshiba was using. And that was on the cover of the record sleeve with me dressed up in a robot outfit too, 
you know, and we presented that to them and they said they wasn't interested in doing an ad campaign or being involved in any way. <laughs> what a missed opportunity. <laughs> yeah, very, very missed opportunity. Wow. I just love that you did that for a friend and then look where it took you. You know, it, it, it makes me wonder sometimes if the art we create, if it's if it's not thought through, like that it, somehow it's it's not supposed to affect your career, let's say, but you mm-hmm. do it out of love or friendship for someone and you're, you know, you just are creative. Look, look what can happen. It's really yeah. amazing sometimes. That's the story of my life. <laughs> <laughs> story of my life. Um, you know, in addition to the English beat, you also worked with other Birmingham band, UB40, who, um, you know, of course, another band that had a huge impact here in America in helping to spread and popularize reggae music. Um, how did you connect with UB40? And then I want to talk to you. I want to hear a little bit about your experience on the Bag of Rhythm album, because you had two tracks on that. One of those songs ended up on Little Bag of Rhythm, which was a big hit here in the U.S. So um, c- can you tell me what your memories of are of working with them um, on those songs. And, and it's true, you still perform um, a couple of those songs in your live set, right? I mean, they've stayed with you and part of your set all this, all these many years later, right? Yes. Um, UB40 were local guys, you know? And when they, when they came together as a band in the early days, they used to come to the late night parties that I was a DJ, that I was DJing. And they used to just, you know, come in, buy a beer, chill out in a corner and just dance and listen to me, you know, for hours. Um, so they knew who I was. I, I, I didn't know them too closely, um, but I knew who they were too. And there was like a mutual respect from a distance. And then when they decided to do the Bagger Rhythm album, they reached out to me. And asked me if I would not only perform on it, but help recruit some of the other MCs for the project. So I did. And they ended up giving me two tracks. I was the only artist that had two tracks on the Bag of Rhythm album. Um, One of the songs was called Hip Hop Lyrical Robot. And one of them was called King Step. Robot and a real cool cat. Yeah, I'm a hip hop lyrical robot and a real cool cat. I want the girls to hear me rap. Cause this MC has got the knack. I'm a body popping, shell shocking, girls fucking ass popping. Lick me all over like a lollipop. I'm a juicy fruit. Alright, alright, alright. I say the A white man in the on or black. Well, I'm a number one MC and that's a fact. I'm a good looking girl looking outstanding night. Just a lyrical shack attack. And um, Hip Hop Lyrical Robot um, was put onto their, onto the, the flip side of their single with Chrissy Hines called I Got You Babe, um, which was a, a, a big selling song in the USA. So that was just shortly after the English beat released um, Pato and Rajo Gatak on the Special Beat Service album. So both bands exposed me to my name to America big time. Um, 
as far as um, hip-hop lyrical rollback goes, it was very popular in many places around the UK too. But Kingstep, I ended up recording Kingstep on my Never Given album. I did a re-recording of it. And then I recorded it again on the Mad Professor Recaptures Pato Banton album. And that song is one of the most requested songs live when I'm performing. So we're still performing a lot when we're touring as well. I thought that was really interesting because basically UB40 gave you a rhythm for if it happens again, right? And basically said, write, write a chat for this. And then you recorded it with an original, I'm assuming it was an original um, lyric. Yeah. Um, so I like that, that uh, it has different, um, it's it gone through uh, different variations. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just shows how versatile uh, that song is and, and that mm-hmm. those, those lyrics worked in, in lots of different ways. In continuing the story with UB40, you go on to have a number one hit with them, right? A ba- Baby Come Back, which is a cover of the Equals song. Um, yeah, how did ten, that, years, 10 years later. 10 years later, right. Yeah. How, did, how did that develop? And, and um, what, what was it like to finally, I guess, go to the top, you know, after all of everything you'd been through in your life and all the hard work you'd put in in your career? What, what does it feel like to have a number one song on the on the uk charts for four weeks for four weeks for a month yeah for a whole month Shut up, Mama. 
What, what happened was um, I, I, I had been signed to IRS Records for 10 years and I gave them seven albums during those 10 years and I was at the end of my contract. I had about one year left for my contract and the, the Miles Copeland, who was Sting's manager, was the president of the label. They asked me if I would do a, a single, a pop single. And at that time, I'd always refused. I told them I wanted creative rights. I wanted to make the music I wanted to make. And so I had a meeting with them and they said, Pato, you know, over these 10 years, we've given you total creative freedom. And whether your ch- albums have been big sellers or not, we've promoted you, we've supported your career. Now we're asking you, to give us a single, one single. And we're giving you three different songs to choose from. And the way they presented it to me was like, I just, I couldn't say no. I was like, all right, I'm going to do one more album for you guys. And I'm going to do a single as well. But I don't want this single on my album. So they said, okay, we'll do a compilation of your previous songs and put this single on the compilation. We'll call it Pato Banton Collections. And then you can go and do your next album, which will be full of just original tracks. And I was like, great. So um, they sent me three songs. And out of the three songs I heard, Baby Come Back was my favorite song. Uh, And then they said, here's a list of bands that you can choose from to work on the song. And two of those bands that they sent to me were the um, General Public, which was the English Beats' new name, and UB40. At this time, Rankin Roger was just leaving General Public. So I decided to go with UB40. Um, But UB40 um, didn't want to do the song as a band. So Ali, the lead singer, and his brother accepted doing the track with me as two solo artists. So it was my single that we were recording. Um, I wrote my original lyrics for the song, and then I asked Ali and Robin to sing Eddie Grant's vocal parts of the song. We approached Eddie Grant's man, managed publishing company and asked him if I could get some rights for my original lyrics on Eddie's song because I actually ended up writing more lyrics than he did because I was rapping, so there was more lyrics. His publishing company said, no, they are not willing to give me not even 1% of the song. Um. So we said, okay, no worries. It, we, we, all, we was already so far down the line with the song that we, we, we didn't let that phase us. So um, I recorded my parts while I was on tour in California, in Los Angeles. The UB40 guys were also on a world tour, so they recorded a part of it 
um, in Europe, a part of it in Australia, and a small part of it when they got back to England at the end of the tour and then sent it to me. When they sent it back to the producer, I was on my way home, back to England. And at that point, I had only put down a guide vocal. And that was to guide the UB40 guys to where I would be singing. So I never really did a final vocal. Are you hearing me? Yes. It was a, it was a demo vocal, it was a guide vocal. So I had another tour to do of the USA. So when the, when the production was finished, IRS Records sent the single to Virgin Records, who was their partner at the time, uh, on univer- underneath Universal. Um, and Virgin was also responsible for UB40. So they just decided, let's just do this in-house on the best label who could possibly release this in the UK. But I wasn't at home when they released the single. I was on tour. And they released it with my guide vocal because I didn't get a chance to go back in the studio when they mixed and mastered the recording. But that didn't phase me because the guide vocal was pretty okay anyway. It was just fun. So um, when I got back home from tour, the song had been released for about two weeks and it was climbing the charts really quickly. And remember, at this point, I haven't even seen the guys. I haven't seen the UB40 guys. You know, we've got a new single out and we haven't even seen each other. Um, so I got back home. No, I'm lying. I'm lying. I'm, I'm mistaken. Before I went on tour was when they was just getting ready to release the single. I hadn't seen the UB40 guys the whole time of, of recording the track. But before I left, they said, guys, we need a video quickly because this single could be a hit. And if Pato's on tour and you guys are on tour, we're not going to have anything to use to promote. So we went and did a video together, which was an awesome video. And we met at the video shoot. First time in years I'd seen them. And we did a photo shoot together. We did a video shoot together. And then we went our separate ways. And then when I got home from tour, I remember coming off the plane, jumping on a train, and then going to the underground station in London so that I could make a link to my train home. And when I went to the underground station, I stood on the platform and the entire wall, the entire underground wall was a picture of me just my face with some sunglasses on and it said baby come back pato banton featuring ali campbell and ali and robin campbell of ub40 just my face <laughs> and i'm looking at my face saying oh my god they have done a huge campaign for this single I get home, and the next day after getting home, Baby Come Back went to number one in the charts. 
the UB40 guys was not home. So when we were called to do Top of the Pops to perform the song, I had to go and perform it by myself. And it was Christmas, I think it was. Christmas 1994. And so I had to play the video with them in it and perform the song by myself. And it just carried on staying at number one for four weeks in a row, was number one in New Zealand and a big hit in a couple other countries. And in the end, it sold 30 million copies worldwide. Wow. And all of that money went to Eddie Grant. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I like the symmetry of it that the equals were first generation of um, mm-hmm. Jamaicans, immigrants to England, and you mm-hmm. covered their song. So I always thought that was very nice. But I'm sorry to hear that you didn't get to enjoy any of the the money that you probably deserved for all of that. Um, so, I, And, you know, truth be told, that song made me so famous in England and opened so many doors to me, for me, it was worth more than any money I could have got because it it allowed me to earn money in other areas of my life and to open doors for young people in so many other situations too. Sure. Um, You became a household name in in England and you're right. That's, that's invaluable for whatever, whatever you wanted to do next. Yes. Um, your album Never Give In was a critical success also, um, with many saying that it marked the beginning of the contemporary era of reggae and that the combination of digital production and shrewd lyrics essentially laid the groundwork for the hundreds of dancehall and contemporary reggae records that followed. What was your hope when you started work on that album and how do you feel about it now looking back? Ooh. I fought so hard for that record. No one's ever asked me this question before. No one. And it's bringing up a lot of emotions. But when I was working on the Never Give In project, I was trying to get the record labels in the the UK to see a different side of me than the fun storytelling humorous, witty artists that they wanted to promote. They, they just wanted the lighthearted side of me, which I had. I had a lighthearted side, but I also had a spiritual side. I also had a political side. I also had a religious side that was crying out for expression. And they all denied me. And um, so GT really was the one that said, you know something, it's time to get your band together in the studio and record a light and record an album with your band. And I was like, great idea. Great idea. Because the band understood my music, they understood my lyrics. And when we performed live, we incorporated some of these songs that no record label in England wanted to touch. So we went in the recording studio with the band, recorded quite a few of the tracks, and then we put a few other tracks on it, like 
you know, um, Allow Tash Gather to Sheba, some of our earlier single tracks on the album too. So it was a mix of live and digital. And my main hope was that this album would be an, a source of inspiration. I wanted to touch people with songs like My Opinion and Hansworth Riot and Never Give In. Um, I, I needed a form of expression so that I could become a source of inspiration to others the way that reggae had inspired me. And um, I went to America and a very small record shop owner who I had met called Sam Genoway um, had just gotten a job at IRS Records and they gave him a subsidiary called Primitive Man, which was a very small very small subsidiary label. And I went to Sam in America, in California and I said, Sam, I've got, I've got an album. Is, and is there any way you could put this out for me? And I just, I just, I just wanted a um, avenue of release. I wasn't thinking it would be a hit or any big plans. I just wanted to get it out there and then I could tour and promote it. And Sam looked at me and he said, you know something, Pato? I would love to release your album. I've listened to it. I love it. But you just came right at the end of our budget. All of our finances just went to the artist that's already on the roster. And I said to him, and these, these bands were getting something like 100,000, 60,000. You know, the smallest band probably got 50,000. And I said, what can you afford? He says, really, Pato? The most I could probably give you right now is $1,000. And I was like, well, that will cover my flight. (laughs) (laughs) So I accepted the $1,000, signed a deal with Primitive Man. And lo and behold, Never Giving Out sold every other album that Primitive Man ever released. And it was, they said that, Never get the never give out, never given album had developed a cult following. And it's it went gold. So gold. And it wasn't it wasn't very well promoted. It was just word of mouth, DJs pushing it, and people just sharing how awesome it was. And and my touring. And the album took off. The English label, Greensleeves Records, when they saw what happened in America, they released it. They asked if they could release it. And I had sent it to them three times, and three times they refused it. But I let them take it. They didn't do much of it in the UK, um, but it, it was set in stone in America and and even to this day, it's still my foundation, you know? Yeah. No, I'm a huge fan of that record. I remember buying it in a record store when it came out because I knew who you were from what you'd done with the English beat. Um, and it was a record that I played a lot and it got played a lot where, wherever I was. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm sure you know that. But in America, I think it, it, it helped to make you who you are. Yes. Um, I wanted to ask you about one of the songs on there, the Don't Sniff Coke. Um, mm-hmm. 
first of all, and some people might not know this, but I love that that song was sampled in a Beastie Boys song. Right? <laughs> I don't yeah. think everybody knows that. You have to listen carefully and uh-huh. I will play that for people so that they can hear it. So that should just tell you one thing right there, that the Beastie Boys knew who you were and were fans and, were fans, and sampled yeah. that song on uh, the song. is called Sounds of Science. But I personally want to thank you because I never did sniff Coke. And while there were certainly personal reasons why I didn't, I want you to know that song was always in my head when I was around people who were sniffing Coke. So, <laughs> but that was a song that my, my friends and I would, would sing that over and over and over again. So um, if that was your, your, your goal, it worked with me and my friends. Never, never sniff Coke. to the people all over. Remember the words of your crucial entertainer. When I say I do not sip the coke, I only smoke the sensimila. I do not sip the coke, I only smoke. I do not sip the coke, I only smoke. I do not sip the coke, I only smoke. I do not sip the coke, I only smoke. Without a doubt, I am the boss, and in my class, I am the teacher. If music is a fruit of life, then I will be a reaper. If MC Business was a school, then I would be a so, you know, we haven't talked about this, but but based on that song, um, what's your perspective on on drugs as opposed to to weed, which is now in many places in America legal? Can you what what inspired you in, you know, I don't remember when that album came out, like in the late 80s, um, early 80s, early 80s. What, what was going on in your life? Were you around people uh, who were using cocaine? I'm imagining in the music business that, that was a very common thing. But um, what was the inspiration for that song? The, in, the, the, the inspiration is that the song is a true story, um, that someone offered me cocaine. It wasn't on a train. You know, I, 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 it was in one of my friend's homes. And I had never seen this, this stuff. I, I'd heard about it. Um, but everybody knew that you couldn't do that around Pato Banton, you know? So they never did. But I ended up at a friend's home who I normally wouldn't associate with that much. But once I was in his home, he had another friend that came in and they both were into cocaine. And then when he offered it to me, I was so deeply offended that um, I got up and left. And it wasn't only the fact that he offered me the cocaine, it was the feeling that I had when I actually saw it, you know? It was just this darkness and just a very strange feeling I had that I just did not want anything to do with this substance. And um, so I decided to go and write a story about this and I took it from the scenario it was in so I didn't, you know, get anyone in trouble. And I took it on a train and made it into this humorous guy called Rody. Um, but the gist of the story was the same. Um, and I've, and I've, I've seen what cocaine has done to people um, and, and, and what damage it can cause to a person. So um, I never wanted to be involved with it. And, and um, 
it definitely has done much more, writing that song has done much more good than I could have ever imagined. You know, even to this day, I meet fans who say, Pato, 40 years ago, <laughs> you wrote a song. You know, these are all adults now, you know, middle-aged guys who say, Pato, you wrote a song that changed my life and helped me through high school, helped me through college. And I've never done cocaine because of that song, you know? Yes, well, I, I, add me to that list, Pato. Add me to that list. Um, thank you. Because, you know, um, it was everywhere when we were growing up. And um, to hear a song like that was um, a good inspiration to stay on the straight and narrow. So for, on behalf of many people, I say thank you. And what was interesting, if you remember, at that time, they had associated marijuana with drugs. You know, they put marijuana with coke, crack, heroin, you name it. The war, the war against drugs, which Nancy Reagan de declared, included marijuana. And then they did the propaganda about the, the dreaded issues that, you know, that marijuana comes with. Um, so it confused the hell out of people, some people, who didn't see the difference between marijuana and hard drugs. When I said I do not sniff the coke, I only smoke Sensimila. And a lot of the interviews I did way back when were, how can you justify the use of marijuana? Or what's the difference between marijuana and hard drugs? You know, and a lot of media people saw it. You know, the light went on, you know, once I explained that, hey, guys, this is a herb. This is a natural herb that grows in the ground. It's in the Bible. It grew on Solomon's grave. You know, the, the Bible says that all herbs are for the healing of the nations. So um, why would we you know, demonize something that grows naturally and no one's ever died from it, you know? So, um, you know, it, I, I lost a lot of um, fans, especially Christian fans, during my early days because they just totally couldn't see the difference and they just demonized marijuana. And, and now, like you say, you know, it's, it's, it's legal in, it's medically legal now in nearly every state of the USA and recreationally legal in the majority of states now. That's right. And I will say the only places I saw fights were at parties where people were doing coke, not at parties where right. people were smoking weed. So That's I'll just right. put that out there. <laughs> <laughs> um, Pato, when did you move to America? And what, what prompted you to decide to, to leave England and, and come live here? Um, well, after six years, I don't know if you know that two of my sons got shot in a, in a drive-by shooting um, in the year 2000 when I was nominated for a Grammy um, and I was doing a world tour. I got news that two of my sons had been shot in a drive-by shooting by accident. So I decided to take a break from my career. Um, 
and I started doing community work in my city. I set up a recording studio for the community and basically a music hub. I created a music hub for street kids. It had a dance room, a live instrument room, a DJ room, a recording studio room, a voice in booth. Um, and um, it, it, it was becoming pretty popular in a very short space of time. And then a local college invited me into the college to set up my base as a part of the, co- the college. Um, and at that time, I had no grades. I had no certificates, you know, not even a GCE. And um, when they made me the offer, I told them I had a staff of five people and I would accept the offer if they would employ my staff and allow us to have one room that was dedicated to the kids on the street. And they agreed. So I became the head of the music department. I did a teacher training course, level one and level two. I did a counseling course, level one and level two which qualified me to become the head of my department. They employed my team, all my team did teacher training courses too, so they could teach in the college. And then um, I created my own school called SMART um, in my own building, School of Music, Arts and Technology. And then another college approached me and I became Assistant Director of Creative Studies of South Birmingham College. Um, I did this for six years working in the community. I worked with the police department to reduce gun crime across the city. Um, After we proved that gun crime had been reduced by 50% across the city, the BBC gave me a Lifetime Achievement Award for my efforts. And I felt as though I had fulfilled my mission after six years. And I was getting the itch to start recording again and touring again. And um, I told everybody, hey, guys, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm moving to America to fulfill a part of my life I feel as though I need to fulfill. So um, me and my wife, you know, ended our marriage, um, sold the house, went our ways amicably. Um, and I took what I had, packed a few bags and moved to America, gave away my car, gave away my studios, gave away everything and left with two cases and came to America, moved to LA. Um, I was inspired to come to, to move to America, not just because I was getting the itch musically, um, I believe that I, I had a mission to fulfill. I was also reading a book called the Urantia book, which was inspiring me spiritually. And the largest community of Urantia book readers is in, is in um, America. And I wanted to be close to them so I could become a part of this mission of spreading spirituality and developing a spiritual ministry. Um, I also had a friend who I loved very much who who lived in, in Los Angeles um, who was willing to help me establish myself. So I had support 
um, so that I could understand how, you know, the mechanisms of social life were in America. So, um, you know, it was a combination of all these different things that helped me to come to the final conclusion that I wanted to be in California. And, um, and everything that I set out to do, I, I've been doing. So for me, it's been a great move. And I still have the support of my family in the UK. My ex-wife and me are still close friends. We're still supportive of each other and our children. Um, so, yeah, that's why I'm here. Sure. And you recently completed a tour of nearly every state in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as as a as someone who wasn't born here, you know, someone who's decided to live here, right? I guess it's fair to say you're an immigrant to the United States. Mm-hmm. What is your takeaway of this big, crazy, and at times very confusing country and the people who live here? My takeaway is because, you know, I actually booked the tour myself. You know, once I, once I moved to America, I took the money that I had and bought uh, an RV. And this RV became my home and my tour bus. I put a trailer at the back of it so that when I needed to get the band on the road, they can put all of their luggage and equipment in the trailer. And we hit the road. And sometimes we hit the road without even knowing you know, how the tour was going to end. But I would just say, hey, guys, we're going to go to 20 states. And I'm working on the tour as we're traveling. And sometimes we earned money, sometimes we didn't earn money, but we was on a mission. My takeaway from going to all of these states, meeting all of these different people, visiting all of these different communities, is that America is probably one of the most diverse places on the planet, you know, um, just in California, not even talking about the people yet, but just in California, you right now you can go to places where there's snow, where there's ocean, where there's desert. <laughs> you know, it's so diverse as far as the land. And then you've got the people, you know, you can go to advanced cities like Los Angeles and New York, and then you go to the deep south where they're still 20 years behind everybody else, you know? So, you know, and then you can go to places in America where the it's racially diverse, you know, and people are pretty much accepting and embracing each other regardless of color, race, creed, or sex. And then you can go to certain places where you have to be careful because they're still lynching people. People are, black people are still coming up missing, you know? And, and um, r- racism is prevalent very strongly in certain parts of America. So you have to know the dynamics of the different places that you're in and, and um, be conscious at all times. So, um, but in general, if I, if I was to put it all together, I would say that America is still one of the greatest places to live as far as 
a progressive society. If I was to remove the fringes of neg negativity, in the whole, I would say it's a positively progressing racial melting pot, which has, which has all the ingredients of a great future society, as long as it maintains its progressive trajectory and doesn't lose sight of its spiritual heritage and destiny as well. Yeah, I agree with you. I hope, I hope that's true. Um, finally, Pato, and I appreciate your time with me here. What would the Pato of 2021 tell the Pato of uh, 1982, who had just recorded a track with the English beat? What, what advice would, would you hear today with me tell the younger version of yourself just starting out? Firstly, I would say to the younger version of Pato that I just recorded with the English beat, get your paperwork in order. Make sure that your business side of your brain is functioning, not just your creative side. In the past, I should have maintained copies of my contracts, but I always left them with my managers. You know, I was not interested as a young person about paperwork. And I, and I was never even interested about money. That's why I did Baby Come Back without, you know, demanding that I get something for my writing. You know, because I was more interested in just making the song, getting the song out, getting people to hear my music than about the money. I think in one way that's a good thing because it's given me the longevity of just wanting to be creative. But in another way, it doesn't put me in a position to leave much for my children and my grandchildren because I didn't really have everything in order, you know? Yes. So the business, the business. The, bu side. the business side is something I would have said to the earlier Pato, get that in order. The next thing I would have probably said to the early Pato is to think as an individual. You know, throughout my career, I've always wanted to include everybody, include the band, treat the band like an equal, you know. Um, you know, I wanted to be a part of my band, not just the artist hiring the band. I wanted to be a part of the band and it cost me dearly over the years when, you know, the band started to act like they were the artist <laughs> and, and, and tried to overstep me because I had given them so much freedom and equality, you know. So um, getting my priorities right in the early days I would have advised the early Pato to make sure you maintain your priorities. But apart from that, I have no regrets. With the rest of my career, the choices I've made, the journey I've been on, um, really deeply reflecting on it, there's, there's not much I would change because everything that I've done on my journey has led me to where I am today with my wife, who I love so much, 
um, Where We Live, which I love so much, and our ministry. Me and my wife are, are both ministers now. Um, we don't belong to any institutionally organized religion, so we don't have a name that we belong to. We just classify ourselves as spiritual people wanting to be of service to our spiritual family. And our spiritual family can be from any religion they want to be from. But if we're vibrating on the same wavelength of peace, love, and unity, then we can be family. Um, and that's our, our mission in life right now is to be of service. And, you know, everything comes second to that. So we're still making music. We're still doing our videos and we're doing our ministry. And we just bought a 10-acre piece of land in Lake Elsinore where we'd like to create a small eco-village. And um, so, you know, we still have hopes and aspirations and um, and we're happy. So um, not too much regrets at all. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. Um, well, I want to thank you, Pato, for, for taking time to speak with me. I really enjoyed this, um, and I really appreciate how willing you were to, to be honest with me and share all these incredible stories with me. Mm-hmm. So um, I tip my hat to you. I'm an, you're an artist that I uh, have deep respect for. So um, thank you very much. I'm, I'm excited. I hope when this pandemic is, uh, is, is over to come see you play live again soon here on the East Coast. Blessings. We, we, are, we are going to be trying to do an East Coast tour 2022. Oh, good. Well, I, I look forward to being in the audience for that. Yeah, pandemic or no pandemic, <laughs> we, we will be trying to do outdoor shows with social distancing. Um, we did one um, in June from, from um, San Diego all the way up to Washington. Um, so, um, the East coast is our mission next year. Good. I look forward to it. All Um, right. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Ska Boom interviews. My book Ska Boom is available from DeWolf publishing at DeWolf.com. That's D-I-W-U-L-F.com as well as on Amazon. Thanks for listening and take care.